For more than 150 years, advocates have been waging campaigns for healthcare equity in the U.S. Relying primarily on moral arguments, these campaigns have tackled inequities in racial and ethnic minority health, women's health, mental health, children's health, veterans' health, rural health, and most recently LGBTQ health. While these various campaigns have faded in and out, the health equity movement as a whole has become increasingly mainstream in recent years. The reason for this is simple. Equity has become more than just a moral issue. Today, it is legal and an economic issue that needs to be supported by both Republicans and Democrats at federal and state levels. But will it be a priority? Are you tired of the high cost of healthcare? Are you overwhelmed trying to navigate a complicated healthcare system? Welcome to Get Savvy, demystifying healthcare weekly podcast where we take complicated healthcare topics and make them simple. Imagine if you could stop feeling paralyzed with fear and frustration and instead be empowered to make smart healthcare decisions for you and your family. Get Savvy with your host, Sandy Kibling, a healthcare professional changing how healthcare knowledge is shared. Hello and welcome to episode nine. Today we are going to discuss what is patient health equity, We're going to talk about social determinants of health, and we're going to hear about how some patient inequity exists via some patient stories. And then finally, we'll talk about healthcare organizations and priorities for change with patient equity in mind. So what is patient health equity? Health equity means giving patients the care they need when they need it and providing care that does not vary in quality because of personal characteristics such as gender, ethnicity, geographic location, and socioeconomic status. So what is socioeconomic status in healthcare really mean? Social, social and economic factors such as income, education, employment, community safety, and social supports can significantly affect how well and how long we live. These factors affect our ability to make healthy choices, afford medical care and housing, manage stress, and more. Social factors are also referred to as social determinants. Sadly, access to health care is impacted by socioeconomic status. Barriers to care is based on what you can afford to pay and knowledge and ability to navigate a complex and ever-changing health care system. Is this right, or shouldn't access to health care really be equitable for all? I am reminded of a comment made by Katie Couric when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She said, and I quote, throughout the process, I kept thinking about how lucky I was to have access to such incredible care since so many people don't. It made me feel grateful and guilty and angry that there's a de facto caste system when it comes to healthcare in America, end quote. That statement is so sad, but true, and people live with inequity, inequity every day. So when is health equitable? Well, it's when everyone everywhere can be as healthy as possible, regardless of where they come from, what they look like, or what language they speak. An important part of getting there begins with deeper understanding of the challenges, sometimes universal and sometimes unique. And there's perhaps no better way to do this than through hearing stories directly from patients and providers affected by patient inequity. 
I will share a brief version of these stories, but will provide links so that you can listen or read the full stories. A word from a pediatrician. She cares for two young boys in a busy community health clinic. Both are five years old with spastic cerebral palsy, global development delay, and complex seizure disorders. One is a registered refugee from El Salvador who quickly had a treatment team assembled that included a neurologist, gastroenterologist, physical therapist, occupational therapist, case manager, and his pediatrician. The other patient arrived from Honduras without papers and continues to have uncontrolled nightly seizures as his mother cares for him alone, and they lack health insurance, private transportation, and the ability to pay out of pocket for health appointments. His father works at a pork processing plant two hours away and keeps the family's only phone, making communication and access challenging. They continue to refuse all assistance except for a list of food pantries on occasion, believing that accepting help might expose them to persecution and deportation. Besides the disparate health states of these two patients of this provider, the only real difference between them is their immigration status. Marginalized Care, Angela's Story. Angela A. tells her story of the care she was given and where her symptoms were minimalized and ignored. She notes, I wish my story was uncommon, but unfortunately it was not. One night I was preparing for bed and noticed an an immediate and very localized pain in the right side of my chest and back. It was so uncomfortable that I was unable to sit or lie down because of the pain. I went to the nearest urgent care facility during COVID. I was asked to wait in my car. After waiting an hour without being seen by a provider, I was told to go to another urgent care location because there was no one who could read a chest x-ray if I needed one. I never saw a provider and no vitals were taken. At the second facility, I was greeted with frustration and hostility because the staff didn't appreciate the first facility sending me to them. They expressed their displeasure at my arrival. Again, I was asked to wait in my car until rapid COVID tests could be given. My husband, who is a medical doctor, my daughters, and I waited for over an hour for someone to come administer a test and wait another 30 minutes for the results. After a negative test result, the provider came to the car to assess me. After a thorough exam, ex- after a thorough explanation of the symptoms by myself and my husband, the doctor looked in my nose, told me I was congested, gave me a diagnosis of post-nasal drip and told me I just needed to blow my nose. The provider never took any vital signs. At our insistence, the provider agreed to do a chest x-ray. But prior to that x-ray, when checking my oxygen with a pulse oximeter, he stated that sometimes they don't work on colored fingers. When I finally entered the facility, he put me in a room and told me that that I had to wait until he warmed up the x-ray machine and left me standing in the room unattended. When the x-ray was completed after several attempts by the nurse, I asked the provider to explain the cloudiness on the x-ray. I was told that it was hard to see the lower part of the x-ray because you have breasts. The provider went on to say that he was not a radiologist and it would be about an hour before the x-ray was read. He sent me home and documented that my chest x-ray was clear and I was not in respiratory distress. The lack of care was so negligent that my husband reached out to the clinical director of the urgent care group to report how we had been treated. Two days later, the director made arrangements for me to be seen by a third urgent care facility. Less than one hour after I arrived, I was immediately sent to the ER, 
where I had a CT scan, echocardiogram, and full blood work done. The ER doctor informed me that I had a pulmonary embolism in the lower lobe of my right lung, pneumonia, and an infarction in my right lung, which resulted in that part of my lung tissue dying. The first two facilities had sent me away in critical condition. I spent the next four days in the hospital with 24-hour IV of antibiotics and blood thinners. I couldn't help but think, if this could happen to me and my husband, who is a medical doctor, this could happen to anyone. But also, what if I didn't have my MD husband to ask the right questions and challenge the system? I thought about the numerous people of color whose symptoms have been ignored or minimized. Healthcare disparities are real and far more common than we think. We have to talk about this because lives are at stake. Joanne's story. They treat me like I'm old and stupid. Joanne Whitney, 84, a retired associate clinical professor of pharmacy at the University of California, often feels devalued when interacting with healthcare providers. There was a time several years ago when she told an emergency room doctor that the antibiotic he wanted to prescribe wouldn't counteract the kind of urinary tract infection she had. He wouldn't listen, even when she mentioned her professional credentials. She asked to see someone else to no avail. I was ignored and I finally gave up, Joanne stated, who has survived lung cancer and cancer of the urethra. Then earlier this year, Joanne landed in the same emergency room, screaming in pain with another urinary tract infection. When she asked for pain medication, a powerful narcotic that had helped her before, a young physician told her, quote, we don't give out opioids to people who seek them. Let's just see what Tylenol does, end quote. Joanne said her pain continued unabated for eight hours. Joanne notes, quote, I think the fact I was a woman of 84 alone was important. When older people come in, they don't get the same level of commitment to do something to rectify the situation. It's like, oh, here's an old person with pain. Well, that happens a lot to older people, end quote. Joanne's experiences speak to an inequity in patient care due to ageism in healthcare settings, a longstanding problem that's getting new attention and sadly that has killed more than half a million Americans age 65 and older. Ageism occurs when people face stereotypes, prejudice, or discrimination because of their age. The assumption that all older people are frail and helpless is a common, incorrect stereotype. Prejudice can consist of feelings such as older people are, are, are unpleasant and difficult to deal with. Discrimination is evident when older adults' needs aren't recognized and respected or when they're treated less favorably than younger people and without patient equity. What needs to be done to change patient equity? Well, in order to change the narrative around healthcare disparities, disparities, we must commit to listening, learning, and having the hard conversations to get to a change that is impactful. We must have a strategic priority. One, we need to make health equity a leader-driven priority. Healthcare leaders must articulate, act on, and build the vision into all decisions. Two, we need to develop structures and processes that support equity. An example, health systems must dedicate resources and establish a governance structure to oversee the health equity work. Three, take specific actions that address the social determinants of health. An example, health systems must identify their health disparities and the needs and assets of people who face disparities and then act to close those gaps. Four, 
confront institutional racism within the organization. Health systems must identify, address, and dismantle the structures, policies, and norms that perpetuate race-based advantage. Five, partner with community organizations to address these disparities with proven interventions designed for their disadvantaged populations and work with community organizations by adopting new vital signs to screen for the non-medical factors influencing health. Commit to helping low-income and non-English-speaking patients get the care they need. Guard against the potential for bias to influence medical care. Make sure elderly women and racial ethnic minorities are, are adequately represented in clinical trials. Understand the effects of adverse childhood experiences and use trauma-informed care. The statistics speak for themselves. U.S. healthcare isn't equitable. Health systems must act promptly and strategically to remedy this nationwide underperformance and demonstrate their commitment to not only health equity, but also healthcare quality and outcomes for improvement. From a patient's perspective, when Angela mentioned in her story that she had her husband as an MD to challenge and ask the right questions, she also mentioned that many people don't have that option. Patients need to be informed and understand the rights and speak up when it comes to standing up for your care. In my own story in episode eight, where I talk about who is in charge of patient care, I waited five years before asking the right questions, and I didn't challenge a system when I should have. Access to care is not a privilege. It is a right for all. Knowledge is key, which is the main reason I started this podcast to empower you with knowledge so you are informed and can ask the right questions and challenge the system should you ever find yourself in a situation of patient inequity. I hope you're finding this information helpful. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you believe others may benefit, I appreciate you sharing. In our next episode, we are going to talk about the top healthcare trends for 2023 and how they are changing how you access care with telemedicine, artificial intelligence, and patient portals for enhanced patient access. Until then, get savvy.